Hey everyone, it's Jaime Alejandro and you're listening to the Arts Calling Podcast and I'm sorry for that, I'm actually practicing because it took me about 120 episodes to realize that it would be nice to take a few minutes at the start of the episodes to cover a few things, make proper introductions for our guests who clearly deserve it and I haven't been doing that, but I think that there was something really cool about just starting the podcast with the little ringing. I thought that was kind of a a cool little touch, but I'm just going to get with the times and uh, start doing proper introductions so that we can give our, our guests what they need, but also to let you know if I have anything going on, any special projects or updates, such as what's going on at the Coalition right now. So if you head on over to coalitionfordigitalnarratives.org, or if you go to artscalling.com, you'll see a link in there too. You'll find the latest issue of our literary magazine over there, as well as any new media collaborations that I may be getting into. It's going to be a fun space, and it's kind of a, a long time coming. So I'm really hoping that uh, you folks will stop by and let me know what you think. And lastly, I also want to let you know that I'm open to suggestions I created an email account for this podcast about two years ago, and I sort of stepped away from it. I haven't even looked at it because it kind of uh, overwhelms me because I have way too many emails. Uh, But hey, if you want to air your grievances, share any suggestions about the podcast or even what you thought about an episode, that would really, really make my day. And I would love to hear from you. So shoot me an email over at artscallingpodcast at gmail.com. That is artscallingpodcast at gmail.com. And I really look forward to hearing from you because, as you know, this podcast is one of the highlights of my creative life. And I just can't wait to uh, to see where this goes. And I can't wait to hear from you. So let me give our guest a proper introduction this time around. Kathy Shields writes about parenting, disabilities, and self-discovery. She is a retired educator with a Master's of Education in exceptional education. Her experience includes networking and dealing with children and families of persons with disabilities. Kathy and her husband reside in Miami, Florida, where they raised three grown daughters. They kayak, ride bikes, hike in the Everglades, and visit the two grandchildren who live nearby. For more info, please visit kathyshieldswriter.com. And with that said, let's give her a call. Hello, is anybody there? Can you hear me? I'm, oh, I can hear you. Oh, yes, I can. I think we're good to go. Let me make sure that I have my face on. <laughs> Hi, how are you doing? Good. Good morning. Hey, Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm thrilled to get to talk to you this afternoon or morning, as we were saying just now. Uh, where Where are you at? I'm on the East Coast in Miami, Florida. Okay, I, I see. So it's a kind of a... a Probably a hot afternoon then, if that's the case over in Florida. It's been hot and rainy and humid. Okay. That's, that describes Florida. Yeah. So you've been over there for a while? Has that been home for a while? Dad has been home for the last um, um, 40 years. Uh, prior to that, I lived in Seattle. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. So, so let's uh, take a look at The Shape of Normal, a memoir of motherhood, disability, and embracing a different kind of perfect. I wanted to start there because this is such an evocative title and it it brings out so much of what your perspective is. And so 
For a little bit of context, would you mind giving us a sense of what this work is about? Basically, I created this book because I felt tortured. And so basically the book is about me being a suburban mother in the 1980s. Um, I had uh, a toddler, she was three, and I was pregnant for the second time with twins. And I imagined that I was gonna have this perfect life ahead of me and everything was going to be the way I expected it to be, except the universe had other plans. Um, and I explore the intense denial and, and my devotion to my daughters. I had three daughters by the time those twins were born. And I struggled to face challenges after I, my daughter was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and later cognitive, severe cognitive disabilities. And I was not convinced that she was, um, had, had that kind of thing. I thought, oh, it's mild, she, she's gonna grow out of it. And if I could just get the right amount of therapy, the right amount of schooling, I could fix this and change this and have it the way I wanted. And I realized uh, toward the end of the book, I, fi I figure out that I'm not supposed to be changing her. It's me who needed to change. So that was what the story's about. Absolutely. And as I was reading it, I'm I'm probably about a third of the way in. And I think that the way that you're describing that just now, this kind of desperation to fix it, to be the change maker in in your child's life is just such a powerful statement. And even as you're describing the intensity of these situations, I felt like there was this energy coming off the page of like, we can we can solve this. We can figure this out. Even as you know, and and as I said, probably like I'm eighty pages in, and there's there's been so much that's happened that it it really just keeps you wanting to figure out how you go about reconciling these these things that are so um, powerful, especially for parents. I mean, it's it's so moving and difficult to to hear to be in that situation. So if we could back up for a moment and think about sort of that time period again, because, and I apologize if, if I put you in that place, because I know that it was a very, very difficult thing to experience. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about that anticipation as you found out that you were going to have twins? That was big news for you. And the way that you wrote about it in the book was just so powerful that I was hoping to see if you could give me a little bit more of that, just to get a sense of the beginning of that change of direction in your life. Um, well, when I was told I was at, I was, I was at an ultrasound and you have to also remember that this is in 1983 when I was, uh, having these babies, things are very different now. Um, you know, they did ultrasounds, but the, 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 the images weren't as, as clear as they are now. I mean, I wouldn't, didn't even know the sex of the babies until they were born. Um, so it was a real shock to hear the ultrasound technician going, oh, look, there's two. And I just didn't, that's not what I had in mind. I hadn't expected that. My first pregnancy with my first child was really traumatic. And I was like, oh my God, here we go again. And I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have trouble which no, I didn't. It turns out the pregnancy was perfectly normal. Everything was great. Um, but it was shocking to hear that. And I was very frightened. But my husband said, well, we always wanted three kids. So here we go. We're <laughs> going to have three kids now. And so it seemed like, okay, okay, I can handle this. This is great. Um, and everything went smoothly throughout the pregnancy. Most of the time, the only thing I felt was I was hungry all the time, like ravenous <laughs> and tired tired, tired. 
Um, and, and I think that's expected with twins. And they also said, you have to lie down, you have to have bed rest. But I seemed to have a lot of energy and I was okay all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was the easy part. Yeah, yeah. And so in terms of, of the emotional uh, status of, of yourself when you were on the other end of that experience of finally having the twins with you in those first couple of years, these were massive times in your life and the way that you describe them in the, in the work is, it's just, there's a lot coming at you. So can you tell me a little bit about finding that sort of strength to push through? Because I think in the early pages, I read a lot of sort of a, a need to find an understanding of the situation. Like, did you, when did you start feeling like you had a grip on the situation that was, that was presented when you finally realized that your child was experiencing this condition? Well, I was told at two years old, she had cerebral palsy. The only idea, uh, the only people I knew with cerebral palsy were people on the telethons on TV mm-hmm. in, in the 60s and 70s. You know, Jerry Lewis used to run these telethons and the kids would walk across the stage in walkers and wheelchair, well, they, or they would be pushed across the stage in a wheelchair. And that was my image of what cerebral palsy is. My daughter did not have that. She could walk. She was wobbly, but she could walk. She could talk, even though it was sounded very garbled. So I kept going, no, this is this is mild. We can fix this. So the denial was easy to, to just dig into because she wasn't like those kids, like like wasn't uh, severe. And then when she went to an early intervention program, when she was three, she got into that. Um, I had had her in some some physical and occupational therapy because that's what the neurologist said to do. And I'm, I'm like, full speed ahead, we're going to fix this. We really are. There, are. there are drugs. There are treatments. There's lots, lots of stuff, right? And so I was told at that point when she was three, well, her, they had to give her an IQ test. She qualified to get into the program because she was physically disabled. And, you know, she had the diagnosis of cerebral palsy. So she, we had to have an IQ test. And for three-year-old children... It's not really that accurate and reliable. Older children test out and you can really figure out what their IQ is going to be. So they said, okay, her IQ is borderline. Mm -hmm. I think they used the word borderline. I think I said in my book it was borderline. Maybe they said borderline retarded because those were the words that they used in that that era. Um, And so I was like, no, no, no. Okay. But what, what do you mean borderline? So maybe we can move it up. Like, let's push it up. Because still, I'm like, I'm going to push ahead. I'm going to have my kid be just like her twin sister. And for those first three years, you could see she was lagging behind, further and further behind. She didn't crawl at the same time her twin did. She walked at 18 months. But she kept meeting those milestones right at the edge of, okay, we have a problem. Oh, she did it. Okay, she walked. Look at that. So she would get in right at the cusp. Uh, right at the cusp of, okay, there's a problem here. So the doctor finally sent me a, t- when she was two years old, he, he knew she was delayed, but he said, let's watch and see twins develop it. He kept saying they develop at different rates and that's how he was treating it. Even though I knew that my, my daughter who was three years older had done these things just like her, just like her little sister who, who was doing. Um, 
I just kept kind of pushing that out of my mind. It was not something I wanted to face, even though I had a father-in-law who was, I was a pharmacist, I know what I'm talking about. So um, it was easy to push, push away with uh, this is not happening. And I don't think I really fully accepted it, nor do I still think to this day, she's 43, she's 40, she's, the daughter's 40 now. Um, I still don't think I fully, fully, fully accept it. And I don't know if I ever will, but I can live with it at the same time that I can't accept it. It's like um, a contradiction, but it's not this, you know, you live with somebody who's passed away and have to live with it. Can't change it, but accept it. So the acceptance didn't come until she was about 12 or 13. And that it took that long that I saw it. I knew what was going on, but I just couldn't grasp it altogether and embrace. I couldn't really do that. Yeah. It took a long time. And it takes a tremendous amount of strength to understand that there are some things that are that are almost beyond your control, but you can still be at peace with the efforts that were being made. And it leads me to kind of think about what you said here on your website, where this is a beautiful quote, and you say, I always struggled with the idea Jessica was less than perfect. As it turned out, she was my greatest teacher. She taught me I was the one who needed to change. My hope is my book will serve as a bridge between parents of typically developing children and children with disabilities. That's such a beautiful statement, beautiful mission. And it leads me to ask you about you being an educator, because it, was this something that originated from your experiences as a, as a parent with a, a child who was differently abled? Or is this, were you an educator before, uh, before your, your child came along? I, I was an educator before my child came along. And writing the book w wasn't because I was an educator or I wanted to, to talk to people. It was, I, it was from a place of, I'm so tortured by this that I have to get it out. I have to vent. I have to get it out and then it, it was, I was writing it during my years of teaching, but it was like little short stories, little snippets of this, this happened. Oh, she threw up all over the table last night. I would write about that, these little scenes. And then gradually I started realizing this could maybe be a book, but it took till I was retired mm. to really sit down and work out all the I had to take writing classes. I didn't know anything about writing. You know, I was a teacher. I was teaching kindergarten, but it, uh, it, it, it came from that. And it started out very rough, very rough. And, you know, I think I wrote the book for the last uh, five or six years, actually was really working on it that long. And then I finally, you know, did the editing and all that stuff, got an editor getting it published. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and that Amazing. must be a, a phenomenal feeling to have this sort of be a culmination of, of, I imagine the things that you've experienced, but also things that you've learned. And I think that's the powerful thing about this work. It's very humane, very personal, but, but you're passing on things that I imagine you didn't know at the time or you wish that you had uh, when you first started out, because it seemed like the Wild West, like nobody cared back in the 80s, right? Like, the terminology right. was different, you know, it was crass and, and maybe could you share a little bit more about that education and where that gap is, you know, in, um, in progression? Well, if, if she were born today, things would be look quite different. She would have had a lot earlier intervention before she was two. Um, and, and when she was born, she, um, she comes, she's born, she was the first born and they needed to give her some oxygen. 
but they kind of blew it off like, oh, it's just a little bit of oxygen. She's fine. No, no follow up. No, no, IC, no NICU unit. Nothing like that. She was fine. Off you go. They're more worried about the other baby because she had a high bilirubin level. Um, and later we found out that there was a twin to twin transfusion that, mm. uh, that somehow that happened. And that's why the other one got more volume of blood and this one got less. And that's why she needed some oxygen. And it was never really clear exactly. Like I went back and looked at the records, but it was vague. But if she were born today, as I said, there would be a lot more intervention. And from the get-go, from the moment she was born, you know, you wouldn't have just said, oh, she had a little oxygen. She's okay now. Her APGAR, an APGAR score is the score they give a newborn to figure out how they're doing. And it was, um, I think it was a eight or a nine acceptable level. And so there was no more concern about her until, until as we saw her developing and realized there was some problems. Uh, did you ask me if that was hard? That well, was hard. I, I guess, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But more, more than, I think you kind of covered it. The idea that so much change has occurred over time in terms of understanding a lot of these, these, uh, ailments and conditions, because back then it just seemed like pre, you know, at least the, the examples that you gave me, the anecdotes of the doctors and the conversations you had were very dismissive. They, they weren't as attentive as you would imagine somebody who's going through a, a crisis would need, you know, like it, it just seemed really off-putting. And I can't imagine that feeling of you being in those rooms. Um, yeah. When I was first writing the book, um, a lot of the criticism I received was you make the doctors all to be the bad guys. And I was, I think I was really angry, but I, I, looking back, I realized that they, they were working with what they knowledge they had at that time and they weren't the bad guys. Um, they they were all doing the best they could um and at one point when i was at, i had seen my um op my obstetrician like a few years later again for the annual i said something about my daughter has cerebral palsy and he kind of froze like i think he thought maybe i was going to sue him mm. and it never occurred to me yeah so it was just this is what happened and this is what i'm going to have to live with um but i remember that feeling of the everything going cold and silence. Yeah, yeah. Like you see, he suddenly felt like, oh, this isn't a, a mutual conversation. This is a me being defensive and I've become the enemy in some mm -hmm. respects. Yeah. 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 He got quiet. So, it's, <laughs> it, it, you know, I, for, I forgive everybody. No, but it was, it was, you know, some of the things could have been done a little differently, but they use that language mm -hmm. in that time. And it, it sounds brutal, but that's what it was. Yeah. People were hearing that. Yeah. So moving forward to to the book itself and the way that it came together, you mentioned that um, when you started writing, you you weren't too comfortable, perhaps with like story structure or any of these things. So <laughs> how does how do you how do you assemble these patches of story of personal experience of really emotional things out into the world as a manuscript? Like what what's your feeling on that when you're putting together what you're calling a manuscript like what does that look like as you're as you're working on it if you could kind of put me in that situation when you were putting this together i guess i started with like a rough outline of uh we're gonna have this time period between when she was born to when she well i don't want to give the ending away yeah, but yeah. but to a reasonable <laughs> oh, amount of to time a, to a certain age um 
So that was the that that was the time period I was going to work with. Mm. Um, and then I I was I was just trying to use many of the short story and the anecdotes I had about the, the in in the book. And then I realized I wanted it it was easier for me to write it in chronological order, mm-hmm. not just uh, pull pull out bits and pieces, but write it in a chronological order that that sequence worked for me. Um, and I started out with, with, with a scene that completely changed later as I kept uh, getting it edited and work on it, worked on it with beta readers and other, other people that would help me. It started out with a scene when I first heard that she was, uh, really going to be severely impaired. And then I changed that because I thought, no, that gives the whole stuff. The editor said, it goes the whole story away. You can't do that. And so she, she had me change that. And so it became the pro, part of a prologue. But we, we moved some, some of the parts of the, that scene around. And then I built it from there. And then I went back into I'm having twins and this is the progression. Then toward the end of the book, I came back to that scene that I'm in that same scene. And this is what, what, what ended up happening. So I developed it like that. It was easier, as I said, staying with the sequence, the chronological sequence, that seemed to work the best for me. Yeah. Were there some memories that that you felt like maybe you had buried or put away that you weren't considering to include in the book? Or were there, were you feeling pretty transparent about the whole thing? Or were there some moments that you hesitated to share? It's interesting, but I was like, I don't, it was like pulling off all your clothes and being naked. I was like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm from the 50s, 60s. They were hippie. You know, everybody was like doing that. Yeah. So it that was my attitude of um, what what's the difference? I don't care. And yeah, there were some things I was like a little ashamed of, but I thought, well, that's powerful. People need to hear that. People need to see all the 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 bad stuff. The 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 things that were challenged me so much because that's going to make this story really uh resonate for other people that are probably going through the same things but they don't want to admit it nobody wants to admit oh i i did this thing or i i yelled at my kid or i i spanked them or nobody wants to show their bad side but i thought it's got to be all those parts and so i guess i will naive i'm naive so it was just sort of i'm gonna write this and that's been my approach to life kind of is a naiveness and that's probably why i was like in such uh had such ability to mm-hmm. remain mm-hmm. in denial for such a long time mm-hmm. yeah and i have to say that one of the most powerful moments that i've read so far in the story was this this moment right after you were told these news and then you ended the section by saying that you it's almost like you felt you felt that you had done everything right and now you're looking somebody to blame other than yourself. Like you were looking to escape that. And that was such a vulnerable, powerful, like moving moment that I, I looked at my wife and I, I was like, I can't imagine this. This is just like a complete honesty. And I thought it kind of drives the point home of what you were saying, because it takes a lot of strength to, to do that. But even though, of course, this was not your fault, this was nobody's fault, you know, but I think that it it takes a very very strong constitution to be able to say that openly and allow other people to 
to put themselves in that situation. And I was mm-hmm. just really taken with it. But I was I was reading some moments in the book about your relationship with your own mother and how that sort of painted or at least colored some of those early interactions and added a bit more to the frustration that you may have been experiencing. And I wonder if, you know, how you feel about that relationship now, because I I clearly only have like a little sliver of that sort of (laughs) those exchanges. But uh, yeah, I'm curious how how you feel about your mom, you know, (laughs) uh, before versus now. Yeah, she's going to I think she's the the start of my next book because (laughs) I really want to explore what made my mother the kind of person she was. She she was a woman who grew up in the South, the only Jewish family in a town full of, in, in Marion, Arkansas. Um, and so I think when she went, finally grew up and was an adult, she never went back. I mean, maybe we visited the cousins there and they still live there. Maybe we visited them once or twice, barely mm-hmm. knew them because she just didn't seem to want to go back there. Um, so I think it colored the way she looked at things and how she looked at the world. And she was very formal and very concerned about her appearances and very concerned about how, what people thought. And it was hard. I think she was a distant mother. She, we weren't close. And I remember thinking when I was a child, when I grow up, I'm, I'm not going to be this kind of mother. I'm going to be somebody who's like really there for the child, for their children. And she used to say I was needy because uh, I'd ask her if she loved me all the time. I asked her all the time if she loved me. And that was like chronic. Like, do you yeah. love me? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure. <laughs> and my mother has passed away about a year ago. Um, mm, and sorry. I still. She was 99. She was old. (laughs) She was, she lived a long life, but she was very proper. And I think that contributed to her being very judgmental and and making me a bit like that, which I had to challenge that because I didn't want to be like her. So, yeah. Yeah. And I thought of asking you if, if, you know, you have any moments that you can recall where you felt like, oh my God, I'm, I've become my mom, you know, like those judgmental moments or those, you know, as a mother, as a, as a mother, you know, like, did you have any specific moments you can recall? Well, yeah, because I didn't want my daughter to have any kind of, uh, you know, cognitive issues. And that was really hard. Like, how am I supposed to say, sure, this is fine. Um, so there was the judgment right there. They're going, you're not going to, you're not going to be like this because that's not okay. Um, and that's where I had to, my growth and my learning came from that. So she also says, this is our book. (laughs) (laughs) right. Yeah. I can't wait for you to write the next one because I read that paragraph that you mentioned where, you know, her parents owned the store and you, you gave it like three lines. And I looked at that and I said, that is its own thing. It's so just incredibly moving and, and like harrowing too, just in that, in those couple of phrases that I'm like, yeah, she, that sounds like a completely new story that we're going to have to learn about. Um, Poor but, mom. yeah, yeah. Must've been through, through a lot different generation too. I mean, the yes, progression yeah. of understanding, I think seems to be a recurring theme here too, because from their generation, you know, of keeping up appearances of, of doing the best with what you have and, you know, a lot of stoicism, right? Like they're just very like kind of, kind of closed off to now feeling like you can open up about these sorts of things. Like, 
In terms of you being in this field and, and having an understanding of children who are differently abled, what have you noticed as the biggest change in, in the last 30, 40 years? That everybody's being mainstreamed. Everybody's trying to be part of the entire population, mm-hmm. that they're not being hidden away. And uh, uh, children, inclusion, the, the word is inclusion. That's what I've noticed, that, that there's a big push for that. And people with other abilities are, are being seen and they're being, you know, there's a, there's a, a campaign to get everybody involved and, and included in, in, in employment, you know, in schools. Um, my daughter was not in regular classes ever. Um, she might've had that option, but, but I don't think so. And, and now they wouldn't, they wouldn't have them separate. They would pull them out for a little bit of the day, but so in school, it's, way different and the rights everyone's right rights of all humans mm-hmm. and it's not just okay you get to have some but you don't right right so if we could talk a moment about vine Leaps press and how you make your way to that publication house how did, how did that process happen for you to get the work actually ready <laughs> for publication and you know when did you feel like it was ready to be submitted if we could backtrack there oh yeah um, well, I started out about two years ago. I started uh, sending query letters to agents. I think I went through 50 agents mm-hmm. and I got one request for a fall. Okay, that was good. Then they said no. So then I, that made me understand that I needed more work on the manuscript, that it wasn't going to, I wasn't getting very far and I was only getting one request for a fall. So I, maybe it was between 30 and 50 when I decided that. So I went back and hired more editors. Um, then I did another round of edit, uh, another round of revisions, and then I did another pass to send out to more agents. And then I started picking small presses. I thought the w- I'm not going to get in with a big, with a big five. I just don't think memoir is going to my memoir, and I'm and I'm an unknown person. Is going to it's not that's not going to happen. So I started choosing. Uh, small presses, indie, independent presses. Mm-hmm. And I started researching every one of them. I sent to 150 of them. Wow. 150. Uh, I know another 100. So that was 150 at that point. I think my list kept growing. And then I finally said I was getting closer. I was uh, one of the presses, it's pretty well known, um, said mm, they were interested and they wanted to see more. Um, then they said no. And so I had the <laughs> I had the guts to say, why just say no? I mean, you know, just don't do that. But I thought, well, what does it hurt? They're, all they're going to do is not answer me. But they wrote too much reporting, too much doctor reporting about the doctors and about mm. this program, that program. And I thought I need another editor. So I contacted a couple more people and I started doing word of mouth. Who do you know? Mm-hmm. And I finally got in touch with this woman who worked at, she was an editor at Bustle. And I think I found her on Facebook or Instagram. I don't remember. And she she agreed to read it for like a, a, a small fee. Just read it. Don't edit it. Just read it. Tell me what's wrong with it. And she said, yep, I see what it is. It's too much reporting. You need to put more of yourself in there. And I have an editor that you need to hire. It's, her name is Monica Wesolowska. And she's expensive, but she's good. And she, had, she has a book out about a difficult subject about losing a, a child and contact her. I contact her and she was like, 
double the price that I had been paying for editors. Mm. And I, my daughter, my I, the older daughter said, "You have to do it, Mom. You have to do it. I'll pay for it for your birthday. I'll pay for it. I'll pay." And it was, I didn't know it was going to be three rounds of editing, but the first round of editing, she paid for it, and it was like, wow, she got my story, and she was cutting things like left and right. She cut. 20,000 words. It oh, was an wow. 80,000. She cut 20,000 words. And I thought, she just cut my book in half. And <laughs> now I'm just pruning to make room for new stuff. And I agreed. I thought, well, I'm, I'm all in. I'm diving in. This is my last shot at this. If this is going to happen, I have to go with however many edits she says I have to, mm-hmm. however many rounds of edits. And I think we ended up doing three rounds of edits until she finally said, yep, it's ready. And then I sent it to 10 presses and I got two requests and the last minute, um, Vinely has had it and another place had it. And I got a request from the other place. And then I said to Vinely, can you let me know? Cause I have to tell them they answer. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, yes, we like it. We want it. And that's And then I said, I think they're a bigger press. I think it's gonna be better going with them. Even though I had to wait a year, they answered me uh, March of 2022. And my book is coming out November 2023. And I thought, I think it's worth it. it it's hard to wait, but wait, I waited this long. <laughs> and I, I was like over the top. I, I love them. They are great. And I think they've done a fabulous job working on my, getting my book ready. And I'm very happy I waited. It was hard to wait, though. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, I mean, in those low points, because I think it's useful for people to hear these stories of how does one lift themselves up when you feel like you're in the dark point of this process and you don't think you're going to see the light of day? You've seen how many editors or you've submitted it, you know, a hundred plus times. Can you share those types of moments or was there a moment that you remember of that process where you felt like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I, this is taking up too much. I'm too stubborn. I'm too stubborn. <laughs> like stubborn with my daughter. I mean, I've gotten her a lot further than I think she ever would have been yeah. if I hadn't been stubborn with her. And it was, I was just stubborn. No, I'm going to do this. And I didn't want to self-publish. I had about six offers to do a hybrid publishing where you pay them to publish. And I was tempted, but I thought if it's not written well enough for somebody to say yes, then I need to keep working on revising it. And I'm not going to give up. I'll just keep learning how to write better. And that's what I did. I just thought if it's written well enough, somebody will take it. And I'm not giving up. And I'm not lazy. I will I will persist at doing this. And that's what it was. It was persistence. And it was hard. It was hard to take. <laughs> So uh, I'm curious of two things right now. Let me see if I can remember them right, both of them. But the first one being the family as a as a second per- perspective to the project. Did they have any input? Did they take a look at the manuscript, or or was it strictly you with blinders on, just trying to get your perspective out and be faithful to that first and foremost? Um. Well, at the beginning, I wasn't sure if I should use their names, first of all. And and then I asked them mm-hmm. and they said, the, the older daughter said, well, then I'll be famous, you know, <laughs> if I'm in your book. So that that was a yes. And then the other one said, OK, you can you can use my name. Um, they are 
they're adults now. So they were good about, I mean, I told, I told some stories about what they did when they were teenagers and Mm -hmm. some of the difficulties, but they, they support me. I, I guess I was, I turned out to be a really good mother because they (laughs) both of all of them live nearby, right within a mile. So they, they all, yeah, they all live near here. So they were, they're very proud of me. They're very glad I did this and they, and I had their support and you know, I asked them over and over, is this okay? And I'm going to talk about this and I want, I want to make sure you're okay with that. And, you know, I, I changed a few things. I, I fictionalized a little bit, but most of the book is all true. You know, there, there was a, a little bit of things I, I, I hedged in some places. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got to be such a complicated thing to recollect too, because yes, you're talking about your child who experienced these, um, these difficult conditions, but also I think about the other siblings and how they, they were affected by, by having a sibling who, who's had these different experiences. And I recall that bit that you mentioned when the, when the twins came home and then the little one said, can we take them back? Can we just, you yeah. know, they, they didn't pay attention to me. Can you, uh, can you give them back? Um, was there, sort of different versions of that later on that that you remember that you had to handle with uh maybe the the siblings feeling like they were overlooked in favor of of you know you taking care of of your other child who was differently abled i i always worried about that and i tried my best to do to give them whatever i could um and the twin that the, the I, the quote normal twin says, well, I know you had to take care of Jessica, mm-hmm. um, my sister. Um, she might have some resentment, but, but you know, what, what was I supposed to do? I did it the best I could. And I think that they, the proof it, that I did the, that I did a good job is, as I said, they live right near here. Yeah, so yeah. they, and they're devoted and they're, and they're good. They're good with her. And I took them to the things they needed to go to, like I, and I had support of my mother-in-law. She was mm-hmm. very, she lived down the street. Um, so she was always helping out mm-hmm. and always telling me, no, take Jessica to this therapy and I'll take the girls to wherever they had to go. If they had to go to cheerleading or, or they went to Taekwondo, they went to a lot of different activities. <laughs> Everybody was going all over the place, but I had a lot of support that way. Mm-hmm. No, that's wonderful to hear. She seemed like a very kind person, your mother-in-law who was uh, able to step in. Um, there's a lot of history there, but I got a couple more questions to be mindful of your time, but I wanted to ask you what is on the horizon here in terms of, of family life and what are you looking to do now with the next the next uh, memoir that you're looking to write? If we could elaborate a little bit more because you, you gave me some uh, inklings there in the beginning. Well, you know, I've been so busy with getting this one out into the world that uh, I played with some short stories that I think could turn into maybe some of the first chapters about mom, about mm-hmm. my mother, and how she often, when I was a kid, she reminded me I thought she was the Wicked Witch. And it was terrible <laughs> that I thought that. And then I felt guilty about that. But I think that's something interesting to explore, how women and their mothers feel about each other and mm-hmm. the generational things we pass on. Yeah. Uh, the the generally, I don't want to say trauma, there wasn't really trauma, but you know, the emotional baggage that we carry. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
be from one generation to the next. That's what I want to explore. Mm-hmm. And so, but uh, first I got to launch this book and see how it goes. But meanwhile, I'm taking more writing classes and um, working on more short stories. I have written a couple of companion pieces to go with the book, mm. but I think that's enough of that. Um, and it's time to start thinking about, well, what's, like you said, what's my next project, but yeah, that's yeah. what I'm going to do. <laughs> so what are some things that, that have, um, made a difference in the way that you write? What are some, some, uh, I guess I want to say like, I don't want to say tips and tricks, but maybe some things that you picked up along the way that have made a difference in your writing recently. I think listening to the critiques and, and not, and not arguing and saying, no, no, you're wrong. Or I see a lot of people doing it when they're first starting out, they get defensive. They don't want, oh, my writing, my stories. I used to say that my daughter said, you used to show me stuff. And I was like, no, you're not doing this right. She goes, you've become such a much better writer. Mm. And it was, I started listening uh, to the criticism and I started take and I took a lot of writing classes and I continue to, I keep saying to myself, it's not about writing another book or writing another story. It's about learning how to write better and making the reader understand, feel what I'm trying to make them feel and putting myself in their head, not in my head. Because I often write about me and what I think and I feel. And my <laughs> husband goes, nobody wants to hear what you think, what you feel. But, <laughs> but I understand he want, I want to deliver something that other people can feel. Oh, yeah, I feel the same way and have that experience. Um, I think that the the most um, most influential thing I've done is like taking lots of classes with with quality people mm. and and being in writing groups um, and then reading your stuff to them and hearing what what they how they take it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I know we didn't cover this uh, because I guess the the husbands are, t- are you know like <laughs> not something that comes up every now and then, but you seem to to have a, a really wonderful relationship with your with your partner during these difficult situations. What is it that uh, that you two look back on together as something that you were able to overcome during this time? I mean, I I'm mostly selfishly curious, you know, because uh, as a husband, I want to be a good husband. So what makes a good husband? You know, what what has made this successful for you? Um he is the most solid person on earth. He's so devoted. He's he he's but he's very logical, not emotional, not like he like looks at things. We're quite different because I'm like, I'm going to fly off the handle and scream and yell. And he's just going to sit there and take it in and figure out what the <laughs> best, what the best process to, to solution to fix this would be or, you know, good outcomes. He always talks about good outcomes. Um, I think it's that he's committed. We're committed to each other. We've been married 48 years. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Yeah. And, and I think it, and laughter helped having a lot of laughter. And he was just a committed person who he was not going anywhere and no matter what. Mm. And so that, that commitment to family and the values we had, we had the same values of, you know, we're going to do this, even if it's hard, even when it is hard, that's what I would say. That's beautiful. So lastly, I'm, I'm curious um, if there's something that you're reading right now or experiencing, whether it's like a, a book or music or a media, something like that, that is inspiring you to stay creative, to, to write some more. Is there something like that going on in your life right now? Well, <laughs> I, 
No, I, I just finished reading Lessons in Chemistry. That was a wonderful book. That was an amazing writer. Um, and I read somebody else's book recently. Uh, a couple of people I know are having books coming out, so I'm reading their stuff. And I think what, oh, what I'm learning to do now, and this is a new skill, is writing book reviews. Mm. I've never written a book review. I don't know how to write one, but I'm working <laughs> on getting better at it and not putting myself in there going, well, I have a brother who, you know, <laughs> like that. I, I, some of my reviews sound like that. Well, I did this and I did that. I'm like, it's not about me. I keep forgetting. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> well, Catherine, Kathy, sorry, I keep seeing, I, I have in my notes, Catherine, so I keep wanting to say Catherine. <laughs> yes. My name is Catherine. I, I told the press, put, make my author named Catherine, but everyone calls me Kathy. So yeah. I'm like, that's, and the name Catherine Shields writer was taken. So I, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so there you go. Well, Liz Kathy, Gilbert did that. She's Elizabeth Gilbert. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, Kathy, I just want to say thank you so much for this work, The Shape of Normal, a memoir of motherhood, disability, and embracing a different kind of perfect, a beautiful story and a lot of strength showcased here. I want to thank you for being so open today and for reminding us of the strength that is that is a mother's love and a mother's effort. And I'm just truly moved and inspired. And I hope that people check it out because this is uh, this is something that uh, I think we all need to look forward to in November, right? Comes out in November? Yeah. Awesome. Yes. Yes. I think pre-orders are going to be starting next week. So Great to I'll hear. send you the link for that too. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Well, thanks again, Kathy. This has been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you for interviewing me, Jamie. It's yes. great. And I will be in touch on the internet real soon. Okay, so just keep an okay. eye on that email and I'll be in touch. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye, Kathy. Mm -hmm.